The Nuts and Bolts of Writing, Season Two, a podcast where we talk about literature, the ins and outs of writing, and how to actually start writing. Hi, everyone. Today, we're talking to artist and writer Carrie Knowles about her approach to writing fiction. We will continue our conversation with her in episodes 212 and 213, where we'll talk about her approach to writing nonfiction and visual arts, respectively. Carrie Knowles is a prolific, award-winning author and arts advocate. Along with her nine books, she has published short stories, newspapers, and magazine articles, and received numerous awards for her writing. She was named the North Carolina Piedmont. Laureate for short fiction in 2014, Carrie has published five novels: Lillian's Garden, Ashwin's Rug, A Garden Wall in Provence, The Inevitable Past, and A Musical Affair, as well as Black Tie Optional, a collection of 17 of her short stories. Her memoir, The Last Childhood: A Family Story of Alzheimer's. Has been described as a must-read for family members caring for a loved one with Alzheimer's. During her time as the 2014 Piedmont Laureate, conducting writing workshops across five counties in North Carolina, she wrote a writing workbook aimed at providing the basic tools a new writer would need to get started—a self-guided workbook and gentle tour on learning how to write stories from start to finish. She writes a personal perspective column for Psychology Today, Shifting Forward, and has recently published a collection of the first fifty stories from her column titled "Shifting Forward: Fifty Reflections on Everyday Life." To learn more about Carrie, go to her website at www.cjanework.com. We've provided a link in the description. So, Carrie, welcome to the show. Thank you for asking me. What fun! Yes, so we're going to dive into the questions now to explore your approach to writing fiction. The first question is: Which fiction genre did you start out with, and what have your been your primary sources of inspiration for your fiction? Well, actually, I started、um, writing professionally、um, in fiction as a poet, not as a short story writer or a novel writer, and.、Um, Believe it or not, being a poet was the smartest thing I ever did, and I published quite a lot of poetry. I don't have a collection of poetry published, but writing poetry taught me how to write good headlines, and knowing how to write good headlines allowed me to get、uh, a lot of nonfiction jobs with writing headlines and、um, you know radio and all kinds of things because I learned how to bring a compacted image to life. And、uh, probably the smartest thing that was a nice education, self-education for myself. And then、um, I moved from that to writing short stories, and I think that short stories have long been one of my favorite forms of writing. A lot of people don't realize that、um, what the difference is between writing a novel, writing a novella, and writing a short story. They just think one is longer, one is shorter, one is this, one is that, and and novels are really there's sort of two、um, 
frameworks for a novel. One of them is uh, a quest where the main character wants something and goes on a journey, a quest to get that. And um, in that quest, either getting or not getting what they wanted, they change and, and their lives change. And um, so that's how a novel works. And it also works like another form of a novel is a stranger comes into town. And when a stranger comes into town, it changes everything. And so that change agent of the stranger coming into town shapes the, the novel. Um, why I like fiction, short fiction, is that short stories are neither one of those. They're really a moment where the main character in a story has what, uh, for better lack of a better term, has an aha moment where all of a sudden they see the world differently. They understand something about themselves differently. And in that moment, their lives change or they change. And, and I love that quality of change, of uh, something happening, of being aware that something happens and it changes your life, that, you know, life is not stagnant. It's it's very uh, elastic and changing and, and vibrant. And I, I think that's why I like short stories. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I really like what you said because I agree with you. I think, you know, short stories... For that reason, they are easier to digest for a lot of people as well as to write because you are focusing on one very important part of a character's psyche or realization. But, you know, a novel, you know, it, there could be many realizations and also many different elements, such as more world building, more plots and more characters, which can be difficult to write, especially if you don't know where to start. Right. Uh, ironically, I think that short stories are the hardest form to write because every word has to move the story forward. You can't, um, you, and you can't meander. You have to stay with that main character and you have to develop that main character in a very constrained situation. And you have to make sure that you're not going to take the reader on a little fork in the road just for the fun of it, where a novel gives you an opportunity to bounce off of a lot of different ideas, like you said, and um, have a lot of different things building in it, which then comes to a head and then comes back together at the end. Um, so one of the things when I when I work with people and talk with them about, you, you know, you just said, which I thought was very interesting, how do you start a novel? And um, I think how you start a novel is you write from the beginning to the end and you look at that last page and that's when you start the novel, because when you get to that last page, you know where you end up. Then you have to figure out where you should begin in order to get there. And that's when the big editing starts and you begin to pare things down and say, OK, this I love where I landed here in the end. Now, where should I start in order to get there? You know, I, I love how you put that. You're totally correct. I mean, the writing, the editing process is actually sometimes more strenuous than the actual writing, I think, as a lot of people have told me. And, you know, sometimes when you edit something, the work becomes a totally different thing at the end. Oh, absolutely. No question. Um, and it's, <laughs> you know, you make a little change and you think, oh, it's just a little change. And then it's kind of like somebody buying a house and they think, oh, all I have to do with this house 
is it doesn't have central air conditioning. So I'll just put that in. And then you rip out one wall to do that. And then all of a sudden you look in the wall and you think, well, you know, there's some plumbing there that doesn't look quite right. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait a minute, the electricity just, could, that could be reworked. You know, this could be. And so all of a sudden you have a gut, you know, you, you are down to the studs and then you're rebuilding. And, um, you know, a lot of uh, uh, people in the self-publishing world, they feel like when they get to, you know, page 125 or 250 or 350, boy, they are done. And I say, no, you've just begun. And now you get to the good part, which is you really get to make it a story. You get to bring it alive and you get to figure out why did I write this story? Who is this main character? The other thing is, you know, you have to discover in, in writing any story, whether it's a short story or a novella or a novel, you have to, to really understand your main character and what their flaws are. You know, if your main character doesn't have a flaw, you don't have a story because, you know, the main character has to fail. The main character has to have problems. And your job as the writer is to help him solve those problems. I totally agree. You know, I I was struggling with that a while ago with one of my stories, um, which, you know, kind of started meandering. And, I, and you know, to, to refocus it, I've been thinking about, you know, the flaws of one of the main characters, um, Malka, who is, you know, someone I'm exploring in a game I'm making right now, because somehow game development has captured my soul a little bit more than writing has for some reason right now, because, you know, I write for work, right, um, for my right. day-to-day job. So sometimes I'm really overwhelmed by writing already. I'm like, ah, oh, I don't want to do it anymore. You know, when you write for work, sometimes you lose your appetite for creative writing. So that's why I'm I'm developing her story in game dev instead. And in her game, I'm exploring more of her flaws. And, you know, as I do this, I am bringing her more to life. I think before when I glossed over her flaws and was thinking more about the other aspects of her story, such as her family and the people she interacts with, you know, she did not feel as alive. So you're right about, you know, flaws being very important and sometimes they can drive the story forward too. Absolutely. And the other thing is, it's like, I tell people, um, you know, would you, let's say that you meet someone at work or whatever, you, you meet a new friend and they're a little taller than you are. They're a lot thinner than you are. They're more educated. They have more in the bank than you have. And um, they're married to the perfect man or or wife, and they have beautiful children and a beautiful home, and they live a beautiful life. Now, come on, tell me the truth. Do you want to do you want to have coffee with them? The answer is no. You don't because you you know you're you would be like oh you know you, beautiful life, beautiful wife, beautiful this, beautiful that. I don't have those things, and, and you wind up saying you, you can't sort of relate to that person. And but if somebody you meet somebody who's just like you and a little you not not perfect they're more interesting and um you can sort of you want to spend time and say well who are you who are you you know um and why are you the person that you are and that's fun it's fun when you meet somebody who you that opens a world to you and people who are perfect don't open a world I want to go to I'm sorry <laughs> So the second question, what is the difference between the facts as truth versus the emotional truth? Oh, that's a very important difference. That is a very key difference. Um, the truth as facts 
And many people who are working with a true story are like, oh, no, but she really said this. Oh, but she really said that. And you get begin to have a very chronological, this actually happened, this happened. And you get to have more of a chronology than why something happened and what the impact of that was on other people. The emotional truth is the truth that we all live with in terms of, oh, I didn't like that, or I agree with that, or this feels right to me, or this moved me, not just, oh, this happened on Tuesday. This, this concept really spoke to me. And the emotional truth is what we are all seeking, actually. Mm -hmm. That's very true. And I think sometimes, you know, what we're all seeking is the drive of the story. Exactly. And that's what the emotional truth is. What drove this story? Why did that happen? Not it happened. Just telling me it happened doesn't mean anything to me, but helping me understand why it happened, then I'm interested, you know, make me care about it. And I think the emotional truth makes you care about something, which I'll talk about more later. Right. Definitely. Um, so the third question is, how did you find writing a self-guided workbook and a gentle tour on learning how to write stories from start to finish? What were your main sources of inspiration for creating that guide? What kind of, what kind of feedback have you received from readers using it? So as you mentioned in your introduction, I was a 2014 Piedmont laureate, a Piedmont being a region, uh, a geographical region of, of North Carolina. Um, and I uh, covered five counties. And um, as the Piedmont Laureate, because it's pay it was paid for by the counties, my salary was paid for by the counties, um, the programs provided were provided as a public service. And so they were free. And so over the course of the 12 months that I was the Piedmont Laureate, I did over 40 workshops in five counties. And I put 3,000 miles on my car. And I had, and all the workshops were generally filled. And people who took the workshops were people who generally had never written before, who wanted to write. And because they were free, they could kind of do it secretly. They didn't have to tell anyone, oh, I need to spend $50 on this. Do you mind? They could just kind of show up for a workshop. And nobody needed to know and they could try it out. And um, I, but I made everybody say things silly, like I'm a writer, you know, like an AA group, you know, my name is Karen <laughs> and I'm a writer. Um, so I really think it's very important for people to kind of own that idea. And so anyway, I found myself, I had lectured in colleges and, and um, high schools and different areas before for many years. And um, I was used to an audience who were, English majors who knew literature, who knew who Madame Bouvier, you know, it, it, Bovary, it was like, they knew what I was talking about. And all of a sudden there I am with a room full of people who had not gone to college or they were lawyers and doctors and, you know, uh, engineers who had gone to college but never taken a literature class. So, you know, I, I had people who if I had given my old lectures to, wouldn't know what in the world I was talking about. So all of a sudden I found myself needing to develop a new way to explain how to write 
And also as the Piedmont Laureate, I had to write, um, I had to do not a podcast, but I had to write a, um, you know, a blog. And I'd never written a blog before. And I thought, what in the world am I going to write about? And then I said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to develop a series of lessons. And that's what I did. So I broke down everything I was doing. And I wrote these um, lessons about, you know, character development, plot, structure, um, you know, story arc, dialogue, and all those little pieces. By the end of the year, people were like, oh, my gosh. And so I would give a lecture and I would say, and also you can go back because I've covered this in some of these, you know, some of the these blogs. And people would, you know, say to me, you explained it so well, you know, now I understand. And so by the end of the year, I had a book and that's how it came about. Oh, wow. That's really great. You know, you, you basically met the requirement for having a blog, created a blog and then, you know, turned it into a book, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and um, you know, I, I geared it for, um, and a couple high schools have adopted it and a couple, um, uh, junior colleges have adopted at community colleges because it is, it, it's an actual, and we decided, my publisher and I decided we would publish it as an actual workbook where I, I developed questions that you could answer the questions. So you had a two or three page lesson, and then you had a few questions to answer about the lesson. And then you had a series of prompts where you could choose a prompt to then write a short piece. And if you did all of those lessons and answered all of those questions, by the end of the book, you would have the structure and kind of the basis of a novel for yourself or a nonfiction book, whichever one you were writing. And we um, and you write in the book. Um, one of the interesting things is there's a lot of research now coming back to our original conversation that didn't get taped. Um, about the retention that people have with typing on a computer versus handwriting. And um, they it's well documented now that your retention is greater through pen and paper than it is through typing on the on the computer. And it's it's a more kinetic. And so we created the workbook where people would actually write into it. So the workbook is, uh, hardcover. It's not online because we didn't want people to work on it online. We wanted people to um, actually do the handwritten work and to have the retention and to really, you know, glean from the book what they needed to know, what they needed to learn. Wonderful. Because, you know, I was actually thinking about this because, you know, I've been reading a bit more in real life, you know, with the actual book. And I was thinking about how relaxed it made me and also more focused versus reading online, because especially because we're always in front of screens now. I think that when we read online, it's very easy to get distracted by YouTube or Twitter or something, you know, and also it makes us tired because we're already spending so much time in front of a computer or a phone in our day to day lives. So, you know. Breaking away from that and going back to pen and paper can really help you focus and also relax, which is important to to brainstorming, I think. Oh, very much. I, you know, I just a habit for many, many years of writing is um, whenever I get stuck, I especially when I was doing advertising copy and things like that, 
I, I would always start handwriting and work out a few lines. And once I had the opening to any commercial thing that I was working on or the headline uh, in handwriting, I knew I had the rest of it. And I could just then go back and finish up another story I, I had been working on. And so, you know, it's like, there's something about that connectivity that's really, really important. The other thing is the computer is very, very hard on your eyes and it's very, very tiring by the end of the day. I don't care how old you are, you know, working on the computer is just tiring, you know? It really is definitely. And that's one of the reasons why I personally do um, a lot of traditional art these days. Cause before I used to do more, uh, digital art but then the more i the more i started working online especially after the pandemic when my job moved online i realized i couldn't take it anymore so that's why i've moved back to traditional art which by the way in episode 213 we're going to talk to carrie about her own traditional art i cannot wait i think that's going to be so much fun i know yes so um question number four in 2006, yes. you bought a small office building in downtown Raleigh in um, North Carolina in the United States. You then named the building the Free Range Studio and inscribed the following on the wall. Creativity should have no boundaries and dreams no fences. Its purpose was to provide office space to a broad range of creatives. You must have met many interesting and inspiring people between 2006 and 2021 when you sold the studio. Can you tell us more about the most inspirational moments in the history of the free range studio? Mm, there were many. Um, I have a very, very close friend, Peggy Payne, who's also a writer. We have had similar writing careers, both being both fiction and nonfiction writers, both writers that made money writing nonfiction and writers that wrote fiction just because we love to write fiction. Um, and we'd always said that uh, whoever bought a building first that the other person would would rent an office from them. This was a very small office building. It was uh, originally a law office and um, with two offices upstairs and two offices downstairs. And, um, and actually it wound up being three offices downstairs. And uh, I took two of the two, two of the offices, one for my writing area and one as an art studio. And then Peggy, had her office um, and we, I cut a doorway. So our doorways could, could meet at an angle and we could open our doors and run conversations all day long, you know, about what we were working on and ask, you know, questions. And then we had a lot of people and Peggy was with me from the beginning until when I sold the building last year. And um, we had a lot of people come and go upstairs. Um, we had, artists and, and writers. And for a while, um, I uh, uh, rented part of it, you know, as a studio, like a sleeping studio. So we had a lot of actors who came and musicians who came and, and just um, a lot of fascinating people. So there was always a lot of energy in the building and a lot of um, talk about what people were working on. And uh, it was a great just a great place to work. Uh, the The best thing is when I sold it, I sold it to a friend of mine who's a luthier who makes violins. So now it's become a violin shop. And uh, I think that's a great ending for it, you know? It is. It, it's yeah. very fascinating. Definitely. I mean, it's so wonderful to see, you know, an organic community grow from that. 
Yeah. And both Peggy and I taught classes there as well. We both ran, um, you know, writing workshops there. So not only did we have residents who came and went, but we also had students who came and went and, and did workshops there and did art shows there. We had a lot of artists come and, um, you know, from, uh, I lived in Australia, my husband and our family had lived in Australia um, three times actually. And I knew a lot, I did a lot of work with a lot of different artists in Australia and uh, hosted several art shows, uh, brought art, you know, Australian artists over and did, you know, sort of introduced them to the United States, their work to the U.S. And that was great fun, really fun. I, I can imagine. Yeah, it's great, you know, to see this kind of international collaboration. Oh, it was. And, um, you know, and, and wonderful for them and wonderful for the community that I live in, that they could be introduced to people who um, you have a completely different world to work from and uh, create different kinds of images. Um, so it was fun. It was great fun. But it was time to move on. Right. Question number five, as an experienced writer, what tips would you give to amateur fiction writers just starting out? Well, the best tip I can give you is to um, find a passion for what you want to write about. And it's that passion that, you know, it's kind of, um, you know, if you, you need to know I don't know. You just need to be excited about something and to be driven, you know, to write a 300 page book, you better have a lot of interest in it. You better sort of be ready to sit down, put yourself in a chair and get to work and do it. And, um, you know, it's, it's not work that you take lightly. I, I also tell people that particularly with fiction, that if you don't hear voices in your head, if you don't, if you can't hear dialogue or ideas floating around in your head, then don't do it, you know, because, you know, that sort of being able to get in the, when you get in the head of your characters, those characters get into your head. They need to get into your head and you need to begin to try to see the world through their eyes. And that's what makes a story come alive. And the other thing is to just do it and to know that if to, you know, people say, well, how, how long do you work? I mean, how, how do you do this? And I think a really good day is two pages that you love. And that may mean that you write five pages and throw three away at the end of the day. I'm really good at that. You know, I just, yesterday, <laughs> I wrote two paragraphs and threw three sentences away before the day was over. But, you know, you have to have patience and you have to see it for the long haul. It's not something that you know, it's not like baking a cake, you know, it's, it, it takes time and it takes research. Um, and it helps to, I think, uh, Julie Cameron, I, I think the thing that I learned most from her was having an artist date is learning to, you know, when you get stuck to get up out of your chair and take yourself someplace else. And to, you know, people say, well, where do you get all your ideas? And I say, well, I don't know, they're just, ideas are just everywhere. And to get out of your comfort zone and go someplace you've never been before is an opportunity for you to see the world a little fresher. And that's what being a writer is all about is 
trying to find that moment in the world that makes you excited, that's fresh to you. And that's the story you need to tell. Right. It's wonderfully put. You know, I think a lot of our uh, listeners would really be inspired by that. And I totally agree with, you know, putting yourself in the shoes of the characters. You know, don't just think of them as pawns, but as, you know, integral, you know, characters through which you would have to see the story. You know, the story and the characters are intertwined. Absolutely. And the stories create the character. And, um, you know, it's short of, like everybody says, well, you know, we need some excitement here, you know? And, um, you know, it's, it's writing a story is not, having a lot of car chases and shootouts in it it's it's um solving the problems and the the difficulties that the character gets into and finding a way to get that character out of it and also figuring out well what does that what does that mean to that character what does that mean to make a decision not to marry somebody or to take a different job or to um, buy a house. I mean, what does that mean to buy a house? What does that mean to um, have to work from home? You, you know, people say, well, well now I, during the pandemic, I worked from home. Well, okay. So that's, that's a, a, a fact. That's a truth. But what did that mean to you? How did that change your life? That's the emotional truth of it. And so to really begin to think about, well, what does this situation what, what happened in that situation and why did that happen becomes exciting. Mm -hmm. Make me care, you know, and you need to make me care about what you're telling me. You know, mm -hmm. you, if you can talk about dog grooming in a way that I'm learning something, you make me care about it. And I'm willing, but no, I don't own a dog. I would read it. If I learned something about dog grooming, right. Don't forget to teach me something when you are writing about anything. Right. Question number six, how did you get your fiction books published? What tips do you have for writers who want to get published, but don't know how to get started? Well, I guess you get started by writing. And um, how did I get my books published? I think that's such a good question. And, and it's a question that has changed. Um, my first book was published in 2000 by Random House, uh, which was the Alzheimer's book about uh, the impact of Alzheimer's on the family members. And then, but before that I had published hundreds of articles and short stories and poetry, um, but mostly short stories and articles and essays. And so I had a track record. Um, I, and I, I tell beginning writers that it's really important to, what publishers are looking for is, okay, this person has a good idea. Can they carry through? Can they do this? Can they, you know, do they respect deadlines? Do they, do they do the work? And so if you have managed to publish something like in a literary journal or a local newspaper or whatever, that shows that you actually can go from A to B to C and get it done, that's a little bit of credibility for you, which is like super important. Um, the other thing is, let's say that you you have that and you've written a book that you like very much 
And um, how do you find the right person to send it to? And the biggest mistake that writers, young writers make is they think that um, uh, I read this book and I want to be published by this publisher, but they've never published anything like I've published, but they're going to like my stuff so well, they're going to publish it. Well, that's not true. That's not going to happen. Because publishers develop audiences. Publishers develop a, a niche, you know, they, and so the best advice I can give a young writer who has a book in hand is to first have several people read it so that you get some feedback. They liked it, what worked, what didn't work, whatever. Get it cleaned up, get it per perfect. Pay to have somebody read it and help you edit it. Um, and then take that book, write out for yourself what used to be called an elevator pitch, which is just like one page that says this book is about this and blah, blah, blah. And then go to a library or a bookstore and find books that are like your book and figure out, make a list of who's publishing those kinds of books. Pull those books off the shelf and read the dedication because any writer is going to thank their agent and their editor in their dedication. Find out who the agent is, find out who the editor is, find out who the publisher is. And make yourself a list of 12 to 15 publishers agent and kind of see, oh, you know, there's three publishers, there's three books that this one publisher has published that are like mine. So that would be a good hit. That would be a good place to start to say, okay, this publishing house likes this kind of book. My book fits that. Because when you approach a publisher or an agent or an editor, what you need to be able to say is say, um, my book is like the following three books, but it's different in that blah, you know? So you wanna be able to give a publisher or an agent or an editor some type of sense as to where you fall in that literature. You know, how can I sell this person? The better your one page elevator pitch is, it needs to be something that an editor or an agent can say, oh, that could go on the back of the book. Half their job is done. You've helped them sell it. So anything that you can do to initially promote your own work, to understand what your work is all about. And that may sound easier than it actually is because a lot of people don't understand what their work is about initially. So it's kind of beginning to understand the market. That's a good point. I think a lot of people, they know what the book is about, but they don't know how it applies to the market. And they can't explain that to a publisher who would want to publish them, or they find the wrong publisher. They just send it to you know the big names and they expect to get published without thinking about that publishing houses are companies. They want to have a specific market they can market to. So if you just throw a book at them, but you don't, ex you don't explain what your intended market or audience is, they're not going to respond. That's right. You know, you're so right. What you just said, Imelda, you know, they're, they're companies and they're looking for a product to sell. Exactly. And, and 
right? They have a market, they have buyers already, you know? And so they're trying to provide their buyers who've already bought from them before with something like what they've already sold them. Right. Well, what would you suggest for books that don't really have any comps? Like, you know, books that are really unique and they don't have any, you know, um, famous books that are similar? Like, how would they pitch themselves to a publisher? Well, I, I think that there, my experience with working with a lot of different people and a lot of different books is there's always a comp. It may not be a famous comp, but there's always a comp with any book that there's no, um, there's no book that's so unique that it falls completely off the shelf um, into something else. And, you know, you need to understand. The other thing is you need to understand the genre you're working in, you know, um, really well and make sure that your work continues to fit that. And, and you know, when you think about, um, there's a lot of wonderful, experimental um literature that's going on that that didn't fit the norm before but now it's created its own norm if, if that makes any sense and you really just need to um you can't be a writer without being a reader and um you need to read and find find your people you know find your your audience um and you know if somebody who likes stephen king will they like your book you know, somebody who likes J.D. Salinger, will they like your book? Is your book like J.D. Salinger's book? Is your book like Stephen King's book? Is your book like P.D. Wodehouse? Is your book, you know, so kind of come up with, and the other thing is publishers are looking for not things like um, that are old books, you know, that you could say, well, my book is like a Wodehouse's book. Um, they want something that's published within the last 10 years. Because right. that's the active buyer, you know, that they're looking at. And and they it, it is a marketing thing. And some people say, oh, no, my stuff. It's like, you know, it's like I do some work with artists who say, if I have to explain, you know, my artwork will speak for itself. And I said, no, no, you better speak for your artwork. Yes. You, better, you better be able to explain to me why you made that red circle, you know, mm -hmm. why you used acrylic paint as opposed to this and what that has to do with it. It's the same thing. And they're like, if I have to market myself. And I said, well, if you don't market yourself, you're not going to just enjoy collecting all of that, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, definitely. These are very important things. And I think a lot of people who just write online or just for themselves don't realize that there is a huge difference between, um, you know, just writing for yourself or a couple of friends and pitching it to a publisher. You know, a Absolutely. lot of people are naive about that. They think, well, after I finish my manuscript, I'm just going to send them to, you know, Penguin House or Random House and they're going to accept me eventually. But, you know, it takes a lot to get from writing online or just with a bunch of friends and actually pitching it to an actual agent. Absolutely, completely. Um, and the other thing is, is don't, you know, there are all these, well, there's not so many big presses that it seems like they've all eaten each other up in the last 20 years. Um, there's some wonderful um, literary houses and those shouldn't be ignored, but they, 
as much as the big houses, they have an audience. You know, people go to those literary publishers because they know the other books that they've published. And so that's what they're looking for. And, you know, know if you fit. And there are certain online, you know, I've just noticed recently that there's been a number of um, kind of uh, literary magazines, literary publications, um, you know, that now are kind of branching out into some form of book publishing as well. So um, that's really important to kind of pay attention to that market. There's a, a very nice magazine that comes out every other month, I think, called Writer's Market, um, you know, that you should look at Writer's Market. You should look at um, all kinds of different magazines that are for writers that will sort of tell you who's looking for what. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for this amazing episode. We learned so much and, you know, I can't wait to learn more about your work, especially, you know, in the next episode, we're going to be talking about nonfiction. And then after that, we're going to be talking about your visual arts. So we have a lot of things to explore yet. Which is so exciting to me. I can't tell you how wonderful it is to be able to talk with you not once not twice, but three times and possibly more. (laughs) (laughs) All right. See you. All right. Bye. Bye.